0: Tere, and welcome to History of Estonia podcast, Episode 10, Making of the Nobility and Two Battles on the Ice for the Price of One. In the previous episode, the victors of the war of conquest against Estonia squabbled over the land and people. After much bloodshed, the Danes and Germans settled their disputes and signed the Stensby Agreement, in which they decided to team up and take land to the east of Estonia. Mostly Russian land, and to divide it among themselves. But before we do that, let's discuss the structure that was created in Estonia after the fight for freedom. Directly after the Estonian fight for freedom, German settlement in Estonia was sparse. The authorities in Livonia sent word out that they were looking for noblemen, especially German noblemen, to settle in Estonia. As the area became more peaceful, more people requested fees from the bishops and the king of Denmark. And the bishops and the king were willing to grant these new fees as it meant a feudal obligation to fight in battles when called upon. This system of governance was already commonplace throughout most of Europe. Only the order did not call for this military obligation when awarding fees, and they did not award many fees. With time, the land was awarded to the the new noble class and was able to be passed down from father to son and was considered private property. As the noble class developed, they started building manor houses, which many still stand throughout Estonia. In the early years of settlement, these manor houses developed more quickly in Harju Viru in the north. In the Danish census book, Liber Census Denai, from the year 1241, it only names three estates, but more are believed to have existed at this time. The census goes on to list all the vassals. In total, 115 names were mentioned. Most of the names on the list were German. Less than 10 were Danes, and around 15 were actually Estonians. The Estonian vassals were most likely descendants of elders from the period before the conquest, and were reportedly treated well. But not all elders became vassals. Some also became landless peasants, and many died in battle. Of the Estonians that were able to keep their land, it looks as if they Germanized very quickly. An example of this is the Maidel family, spelled M-A-Y-D-E-L-L. Which lasted until the 20th century. Their coat of arms is decorated by three fish and the word maidel. In Estonian, it means gudgeon, a type of small fish. So it is understood that these vassals were Estonian. Of the Germans that migrated, most of them came from either the region around the Rhine or Westphalia. The Estonians were foreign to the new settlers and were not seen as trustworthy, and were often treated with disdain. At first, the manors were small, about the size of five plowlands. With time, opportunities arose to expand the estate. This happened in various ways. One could buy up new land, take land by force, or buy up abandoned land that occurred due to war or epidemic. At first, the new farmhouses were large buildings without a chimney, with only one heated room. In time, the manor houses were built. The confines of the estate was defined by a strong wooden fence that marked its boundaries. It was not until the 14th century until the vassals started to incorporate citadels into their design, so that there was a place to defend themselves and their family in case of attack. Before the citadels, one had to make their way to the castle of the bishop if there happened to be a peasant revolt. In 1343, 23 manors existed in Harju-Viru, of which 21 were in Harju. In other regions of Estonia, very few manors existed at this time. There also existed two collective landlords, one in the Tartu Diocese in Karkna and one in Harju. In these settlements, people cloistered together, splitting resources and wealth, which enabled them to build mighty strongholds. The nobility didn't have a lot of say in foreign policy during this period, and and defaulted to the decisions of the Teutonic Order and the Pope, because their dealings with the Russian principalities in Lithuania required a unified message Backed with military might. The Lithuanians had increasingly become stronger in this period and were united under Grand Duke Mindaugas, and they proved to be a formidable obstacle in the German plan to expand to the east. Both the Germans and Lithuanians were persistent in their fight against one another. As mentioned previously, in 1260, the Lithuanians under Mindaugas defeated the Sword Brethren. In the Battle of Derbe and effectively wiped them off the chessboard. The Lithuanians' success incited other Baltic people to try and subdue their oppressors. In 1263, the Lithuanians drove deep into Livonia, sacking and burning old Parnu. In 1270, they returned and raided Lanama and Sarama. This happened in winter, and as previously mentioned, the sea often freezes over in winter. Upon crossing the frozen Baltic Sea, they were met by a strong army of the Order, and a really interesting battle took place on the frozen sea. The Lithuanians were pulling sledges loaded down with loot from when they were, were when they were confronted by the Order. The Order attacked with a cavalry charge, but the Lithuanians had maneuvered their sledges into a defensive line. When the German cavalry met the defensive sledge line, they became entangled and couldn't move freely and were forced into hand-to-hand fighting. The Germans were badly beaten and the ordermaster was killed and he was buried at a nearby church at Karuse. Relations with Russia were just as volatile. With the Stensby agreement being settled with the goal of bringing Catholicism to the Greek Orthodox Russians, several battles occurred over the next couple years. In the, summer of, uh, in the summer of 1240, a large Swedish contingent marched into Russia with the aim of cutting off trade and access to the Baltic Sea from the Russian Principality of Novgorod. Prince Alexander Yaroslavich and his army marched from Novgorod and engaged the Swedes at the Neva River and the Russian prince won a decisive victory. After this victory, the prince took on the name Alexander Nevsky after the river the battle was fought. To this day, Alexander Nevsky is seen as a Russian hero. The Latin Christians then attacked Peskov in the winter of 1240 and captured it along with the fortress of Izborsk. It wasn't long before Alexander Nevsky was called again and to protect Russian interests. He quickly took Peskov and raided into Estonia, south of Tartu. A large army was gathered in Livonia under the Bishop of Tartu and moved to engage the Russian army. Nevsky's scouts informed him of the large army moving their way and retreated north to the frozen Lake Pepsi and took up an elevated defensive position with his 5,000 men on the eastern bank of the lake. The Livonian Christian army amounted to 2,500 men, of which several hundred were heavily armored German and Danish knights that made up the center of the line. With Livonian brothers of no more than 100 making up the right, and a couple units of regular militia took up the left, and the second line consisting of lightly armored Estonians being held in reserve. When the Livonian side was halfway across the lake, They charged, hoping the mounted knights would be able to devastate the much larger army. The initial charge by the Latin Christians did not break the Russian center, and the larger army was able to wheel around and started to envelop the Livonian side. The Estonians briefly engaged the Russians, but seeing the battle had turned made the prudent decision to flee for safety. After the battle, the former borders were established between Livonia and the Russian principalities, and these borders still exist today, and they mark the boundaries of Estonia, Latvia, and Russia. It has also put the brakes on the plans for the expansion laid out in the Stensby Agreement. The, the sides stayed in relative peace until the 1320s. By that time, the Lithuanians had become much stronger and stronger and were governing Pskov, but they had an alliance with the Russians and a dual army raided into Estonia, past the Narva River, going as far as Tallinn. The Livonians retaliated and attacked Piskov, but neither side was able to overrun the enemy's defenses, and it went back to a stalemate. In old Livonia, after the Estonians lost their fight for freedom, cities began to develop along old trade routes, which, which had the added advantage of being protected by fortresses. The fortresses needed to be strong, and therefore master builders and craftsmen were brought in. There was now a demand for goods in these strongholds. Therefore, merchants started moving into fortresses to help supply the products needed. In 1230, the sword brethren invited 200 merchants from Gotland to settle in Tallinn and the surrounding areas. Many settled in Tallinn around the area of the Niguleste Church. Two parishes started to take shape in the lower part of Tallinn, one around Niguleste Church and the other near Oliviste Church, and construction of homes and businesses were taking shape. Tallinn was officially granted its freedom as a city in 1248. The city of Tartu, in contrast, had already developed into a city-like settlement before the Christians even appeared in the area. Once Tartu and its surrounding territory was conquered and it was somewhat safe to settle, merchants, builders, and craftsmen started to arrive. Tartu was declared to be a city in the year 1262. The city of Vanapernu, or Old Pernu, on the right bank of the estuary of the Pernu River, was settled for the purpose of being the sauterma Lanama diocese. As mentioned earlier in this podcast, the Lithuanians sacked the city and put it to the flames so that it was unusable. The bishop saw this area around Pernu as not easy to defend and decided to move the diocese to Hapsolu, where a city emerged there as well as a new fortress. A new city started to take shape on the left bank of the Pernu River, and it was named Us Pernu or New Pernu. If you go to Pernu today, and I recommend you do, and specifically Old Pernu, the massive rock fortifications, while in a ruinous state, still demands attention and are very impressive. Both Paide and Viliandi were settlements next to fortifications and they also became cities in the 13th century. To the east, the cities of Narva and Rockfairie were under Danish control, but did not become cities until the early 14th century. By the mid-14th century, a total of nine cities had emerged. Thanks to the strong walls that provided a certain amount of security, the craftsmen and merchants thrived, and some immigrants started arriving. This is also the beginning of Estonian townspeople. All of this growth of population and increased wealth had the sturdy walls of the strongholds to thank. At first, the new conquerors used the captured Estonian fortresses, which were made of wood, adding to them and rebuilding them as necessary. Work on the first stone fortress commenced in 1224 in Atupai. This is the first ever brick fortress constructed. Upon the Danes taking control of Tallinn, they went right to work building their massive fortress on Tompea Hill. Tompea was built following the four-cornered wall design of the castle fortress and used Estonia's local abundance of limestone as the primary building material. One of the most grand fortresses built by the order was that of the fortress of Viljandi. This fortress included Estonia's most powerful convent, which was used as a home for the order. Another type of fortress built in Estonia at this time was the Tower Fortress, which was built in Paide and was reconstructed in 1993. Many building masters were brought in to design these massive fortifications, but the labor that went into building them was local Estonian labor. The amount of time and work that went into building these fortifications is mind-blowing to me personally. In a recent visit to Viljandi, this point stuck in my mind. The earthworks that were created there are immense. To think that these were excavated using hand tools and not modern excavation equipment is truly astonishing. If you get a chance to head down south, it is worth the time. And while there, try and think about the people that were forced to do the labor. I would really like to dig into more detail about the forts that today still stand and those that lay in ruin. While I am tempted to, I don't want to slow down our timeline because, as it is, it will take quite a long time to get through. And it has been my desire since before I started the podcast to eventually do individual episodes on all the really interesting places there are to visit in Estonia and hopefully give each of them the proper amount of information and time they deserve. In next episode, we cover one of the most important events in Estonian history, the St. George's Night Uprising, where the Estonians throw off the shackles of their oppressors in the most bloody of fashion. If you have any question or would like to reach out to me, you can contact me at sparsleyw at gmail.com. That's S. Parsley, like the herb or vegetable, w at gmail.com also if you can find the time to give the podcast a positive review it will help in the dist- distribution algorithms and more people will be able to find this podcast and until next time nagamisini.